Um, so much of collective change happens because of individual actions of people that creates that that synergy and that creates that momentum for collective action. And so, yeah, I, I just think everyone has a role to play regardless of what they're doing, where they're living. Um, yeah, and so I, I do just believe that it doesn't matter what you're doing as long as you're doing something. So that can look like educating yourself so that you learn and understand these topics in, in a more intimate way so that you can be having more in-depth conversations with people so that change can happen just in your local space. Hello and welcome to the Plant Paradigm Podcast where we have inspiring conversations with amazing people from all around the world and look for ways to create a clean, green and sustainable future for us, the planet and of course all beings. I am your host Tom Simak, an athlete and fellow plant eater who is here to help facilitate those conversations. Now just before we get into today's conversation, I wanted to give a shout out to those people who have left a review on the podcast it's helping us so much we are currently at five stars that is awesome awesome news i'm really stoked with that and for anyone who hasn't left a review yet i do implore you to do so um it's my little serotonin boost to keep on going on to today's episode it is with ariel king Ariel is an environmental justice staff attorney at the Environmental Law Institute and has a background in environmental racism analysis, political ecology, critical race theory, sustainability, civil rights law, and integrated equity, and environmental justice considerations into climate action policies. She also works closely with Intersectional Environmentalist, a nonprofit where she also hosts their podcast, The Joy Report which focuses on climate optimism. This conversation is important. It is about climate justice. It is about environmental justice and racial and social justice. There's so much going on that is important in this conversation. We're talking about systemic corruption, reforming the educational system, and so much more. I really think that everyone will benefit from this conversation, much like I did. And with that being said, I'm gonna let Ariel take it away. And I'll see you on the other side. Ariel, welcome to the Plant Paradigm Podcast. How are you going? I'm doing well today. How are you today? Very good, thank you. First thing in the morning, it's nice and cold here, so you feel fresh and rejuvenated. Um, you know, as long as you can get over that curb of getting out of bed kind of thing, and then you're like, oh, cool, I've done the hardest part today. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm... On the complete opposite end of that, um, you know, it's the end of the day. Worked um, pretty much all day today, so I, I appreciate your energy um, from starting anew. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to receive some of that th- through osmosis um, over over Zoom. So yeah, excited. Let's do it. <laughs> um, you know, to set the stage for the conversation, I thought it would be really productive to start with maybe what what it is that you do like I know you spread yourself on a lot of different issues so this might be a bit of a more difficult question but how you explain you know who is Ariel and what you do Hmm. okay I think the easiest way to boil it down is I'm an environmental justice advocate I everything that I do in my professional life is related to 
the advocate like the advocacy of people who have been experiencing disproportionate levels of environmental harm and people who have been excluded from access to equal enforcement and equal protection from environmental laws and um, access to leadership in the environmental and conservation movements. So at my full-time job, I work as the environmental justice staff attorney at a think tank in Washington, D.C. called the Environmental Law Institute. And in my part-time job, I work with an organization called Intersectional Environmentalist. And there I am the host of their podcast, which is called The Joy Report. And it's all about climate optimism, centering positive climate news and climate stories, and thinking about those things through the lens of intersectionality and environmental justice. And I also run their TikTok page. So that's that's kind of what I'm up to on a, on a general basis. And I, I came to this work really from my own kind of lived experience. I grew up in a neighborhood that had a lot of different sources of pollution that were causing um, adverse health impacts to my neighbors. And so most of the people that I grew up with had different types of asthma, different types of cancer that they had developed just from where they were living. And so I, I became very fortunate to have a mentor that was willing to help cultivate this, this love for the outdoors for me and you know get me outdoors and spend time with nature and from there i i just recognized the the beauty of this planet and the need to protect and preserve it in whatever way felt comfortable for me and so that's kind of what i've been up to yeah that's incredible i love how nature it's something i think nature as well as it's known is pretty underrated as a whole, like the yeah. impact it can really have because we don't, we can't understand it. You know, there's no science that can come out on the, I feel like it's almost like the avatar. Like if you've seen the original avatar movie with James Cameron and it, like it's, it's a symbiotic system that we haven't really tapped into. Mm-hmm. Um, but something you said earlier, I just wanted to dive into, you said that there are certain people that are affected um more often or more so than other people. So who are these populations that are maybe of more risk of climate injustice or um, systemic issues? Sure. So it's um, black, indigenous, people of color, low-income people, and that's kind of generally what it looks like globally. So um, I... The work I do is primarily domestic. It's focused on the United States, but environmental injustice that is disproportionately harming people of color and low-income people is unfortunately something that occurs on a global scale. Um, And so we're seeing people who have contributed the least to environmental crises experiencing the worst harm, and it's happening to them faster than in more developed nations in more developed areas, more affluent areas. Um, you know, in the whole idea of environmental justice and climate justice is this recognition that there needs to be a more level playing field in who is receiving the burdens and benefits of things that we all experience. So for example, if there is a landfill that's going to be cited, um, they shouldn't always be cited in black and brown communities, um, which is often the case in the United States. 
if there is a refinery that needs to be built, that shouldn't always be cited in a black and brown community um, because everyone reaps the benefits of having those types of services. And so, and it's, it's about power, it's about power dynamics, it's about capitalism and the role that that plays in all of this. Um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of, that's where we're at. And as we are experiencing more and more effects of the climate crisis, we are seeing that that women disenfranchise people in general, disenfranchise communities who are often excluded from decision-making are being impacted most severely by the changes in the climate. Mm, that's really, there's a few things we can really touch into there. Um, the disempowerment is quite a big issue. I think for a lot of people, even someone like myself, who I find myself quite educated, that is a very big thing to change and it's something yeah. that you can't just oh I want to change the the balance of power today that's what I'm going to do today you right. can't unfortunately do that so how do you see that shifting because obviously that's a that's a big problem and it's it's been studied it's not something we're making up for anyone who wants to look into it it's actually quite well known and well researched right how do you see that changing over time to slowly become a more balanced system um, I have to say that I'm I'm very optimistic with this new generation um, that's like coming up. I'm really excited about young people being aware of these issues and just holding people accountable, holding their elected officials accountable. Um, that's such a huge step in the right direction. Also, in the U.S., we're we're in the midst of a time that. You know, politicians are finally acknowledging terms like environmental racism and acknowledging that there are disparate impacts for people um, as it relates to the environment based on race. In the United States, race is one of the most significant indicators of proximity to hazardous infrastructure and toxic infrastructure. And so you know there there's been a very long history of kind of ignoring that fact and trying to, almost gaslight people when they're complaining and they're talking about the harm that they're experiencing from just living in their neighborhoods. And that comes from a history of, you know, systemic racism and practices that have historically literally excluded people from certain neighborhoods and zoning ordinances that allowed mixed use. So, you know, in, in a more affluent neighborhood, it would just be residential. It would just be housing that would be there. Whereas in like more low income and for communities of color, a lot of them are zoned as mixed use. And so it allows for um, big utility companies to come in, it allows for factories to come in, it allows for all of these like polluting infrastructures to come into these neighborhoods where they just simply would not be able to exist in more affluent places. Mm, that's it. I'm really excited for that change, actually. It sounds actually quite nice. Um, now, something <laughs> – I love that you have hope for the younger generation. I definitely have a glimmer of that too. Um, something that you mentioned is history. Now, we can't avoid that place like, places like the U.S. have a pretty dark history and Australia is no different with our, with our past and the way that we've um, handled colonization as a whole, I suppose. Yeah. Now, this – obviously I would say is a long time coming. Like people of color weren't just all of a sudden put in these areas where 
there's these um, hazardous equipment and materials and buildings going on. This was gradual over time. And so I'm imagining slowly, like you said, we're going to have to gradually delay that. So, or, or sorry, balance that out. Sure. So my question with that is, why do you think there is all of a sudden some almost seems like a revolution from my point of view. Do you see it like that? Like something happened somewhere, sometime, and people are like, all right, that's enough. We need to balance out the systems. Do you see like something that happened that flicked a switch? Yeah, I, I think, and it's and it's such an eerie thing to think about, but like the summer of 2020, like following the murder of George, George Floyd, like that was a time that shook this whole planet, I think. And, and there was such a deep recognition that so many of our systems are, there's racism embedded in so many of our systems. And that is kind of the cause for so much of what we're experiencing today and so many disparities. And, um, you know, I feel really fortunate to be a part of an organization like Intersectional Environmentalists that started at that time. And it started as a result of a social media post. It's like environmentalists for Black Lives Matter. And, and that is what started IE really, um, just in a, a recognition that one, everyone has a role to play in fighting structural and systemic injustice. Um, and also recognizing that there's no one person that you can point the blame to. And so it's a matter of giving individuals grace and being very tough on those systems and being very intentional about working through and working past and overcoming the the harm inflicted by those systems. Mm, yeah, you, you said everyone has a role to play. Yeah. What is the role that you'd like to see people play? Well, I I want them to play whatever role feels comfortable to them. I think um, as the climate crisis continues to strengthen, um, for lack of a better word, there there is a recognition that every single role, every single job is soon going to have a component of thinking about climate. Um, kind of regardless of your industry, regardless of your field. And so in my mind, it's like, what do you like? What are you good at? What are the needs? And like, what would make you feel fulfilled in contributing to solutions? You know, if, if everyone is doing small incremental things to make changes in the right direction, then eventually we're going to like lead in that right direction. Um, so much of collective change happens because of individual actions of people that creates that that synergy and that creates that momentum for collective action. And so, yeah, I, I just think everyone has a role to play regardless of what they're doing, where they're living. Um, yeah. And so I, I do just believe that it doesn't matter what you're doing as long as you're doing something. So that can look like educating yourself so that you learn and understand these topics in, in a more intimate way so that you can be having more in-depth conversations with people so that change can happen just in your local space. Um, I remember when I was in elementary school, um, we, we were talking about climate change then. And I was like, we are not 
celebrating Earth Day at my school. And, you know, for me, I don't know why that was like such a big issue to me, but I took it upon myself to like talk to my my principal and really make clear that this is something that I wanted to happen. And I wanted us to start recycling more. I wanted us to start planting. Is this trees. while you're in school? Yeah, I was in like fourth grade. I don't even know. I was like eight. Um, and it's like, this has to happen. <laughs> like, um, And so I, I don't know. I just believe that um, so much good change can happen at the local level and happen within small systems. Um, and if we are, especially at times when we feel like the, the national and the global scale and the national and global leaders are not doing what we want them to do. I think that's the moments when we really have to look inward and like look to our local communities and figure out what change we can make um, one more immediately because things always happen faster at the local level, but two, mm -hmm. just more collectively and um, more efficiently. Yeah. There's so much goodness in there. How good is grade four Ariel bringing <laughs> in the recycling programs? That's a vibe. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, something I really, really love and think people should take notice of, notice of is what you said at the beginning that, you know, it's about collective change. And I think yeah. people in this space always hear this really victim mindset, maybe from other people and hopefully not that one person can't make a difference. So mm -hmm. why bother? It's right. that whole, whether you're going plant-based, whether you're taking public transport to work, whether you're just trying to recycle more and, and be or use less materials overall and resources. It's like, yeah. why would you ever think that you can't make a difference? How disempowering is that? Yeah. I mean, and it makes sense to a certain extent that people feel so powerless. Like when we see that the military, for example, is like one of the main contributors to emissions. We see that, you know, there are still so many like fossil fuel projects that are just obliterating our planet. And so I, I think that it's normal and very understandable to feel powerless and defenseless against this calamity that we are collectively, you know, experiencing. However, um, you know, there's there's a lot of hope in in what solutions already exist. And there's a lot of hope in what mm. people are doing to try to combat that. And, you know, again, that collective action piece, like if we are changing our individual habits, then systems eventually have to change to reflect that. And so like if we are encouraging our friends to also use public transit and also consume less and also start eating more plant-based, then eventually something's going to catch on. And so I, I would, I just encourage people all the time to not lose hope because there's so many things to be optimistic about. There's so much positive happening, like related to climate solutions. And that's kind of why we started the joy report in the first place. Um, because we recognize that so many people feel this sense of despair and this sense of hurt. And then they also just are anxious and terrified. There are um, therapists that are now being trained in how to deal with young people experiencing climate anxiety. That's something that did not exist five, 10 years ago. And so we are just, we're in a very different time. And so 
instead of just leaning into the doom and gloom, now is the time that everyone has a responsibility to take this collective action and take positive steps to to change the trajectory of our planet. Yeah, I um I couldn't agree more. The Joy Report is a great example of something that is much needed in the world. And I, I gave a few episodes a listen and I thought it was actually really cool that the optimism spin on things because it's it's definitely something we need. So while on the topic I thought it would be pretty productive to actually, you know, give us give us something you're optimistic about regarding climate justice or environmental justice. Um well so right now in in the US the the Biden administration has just opened up um, different offices of environmental justice at different agencies. So in addition to the Environmental Protection Agency, which creates and regulates the environmental laws related to the environment having a role in environmental justice, now the Department for Health and Human Services also has an EJ office. And so um, I'm really excited about this like holistic approach and recognizing that EJ is not something that should just be related to environmental studies or environmental law. Um, if we are going to tackle any of these problems, it has to be in a holistic and intersectional manner. And so I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about the increase in investments um, for like BIPOC-led, Black, Indigenous, People of Color-led um, organizations who are creating climate solutions. There has been a push to make sure that funding is going directly to those organizations as opposed to it staying within like the, you know, nonprofit industrial complex and like all of these big greens that have been around for, for decades and decades um, because they have contributed to the exclusion of people of color from the environmental movement. And so I'm excited for uh, this shift that is trying to rectify that harm. You mentioned contributed to the exclusion of these people. Can we dive into that for a second? So, yeah, <laughs> is it that that sounds like a that's a very big, bold claim, and it's you know that could probably shock a lot of people, and it definitely perked my ear up. So, can you uh, expand on that, please? Sure. Okay. So, all right. Let's see. Where do I want to begin? So in the United States, for example, as I mentioned, this is this is where most of my work is. Um, the conservation movement, it was created in a way that literally displaced Indigenous First Nations people from the landscape. So with the creation of national parks and all of these other places that are now preserved and protected, there was an idea, a notion that these landscapes needed to be completely untouched by man in order for them to be well-preserved. And obviously that erases centuries of indigenous knowledge and relationship to the land. And it also created these just, and it, it just created lots of displacement. And from there, there's just been in a history of continuing those types of cycles. And so because, and, and even like the, Conservation Act, like one of the first conservation acts that was um, enacted in the U.S., it said that we wanted our landscapes to be idyllic Edens that were untrammeled by man. Like that phrasing literally just completely displaces First Nations people from those landscapes. Um, and there are so many 
organizations that are based on the principles that were created by those notions. And so as a result, there, and it may not have always been intentional, but there has been an exclusion of certain people from environmental conversations and conservation conversations. And so we are unfortunately continuing to see the ripple effects of that. And so you look at the higher up executives at a lot of these like very big environmental organizations and they're quite homogenous. They're generally white cis people. Um, and, and, and it, and the cycle continues. And so that's, that's something that's again, why I'm so excited about like funding being invested in, you know, let like initiatives and organizations that are led by people of color, um, because there has been this exclusion and, and there's also like in the U S it with the dawn of the federal environmental laws, like the, all of these federal environmental laws, the clean water act, the clean air act, all of these things, they were created by white male lawmakers. And, you know, some of them have admitted that they took some of their teachings and some of their learnings for the enforcement of these laws in the early days from the civil rights movement, but did not include people of color in those conversations. And so there's, there's just a disconnect. Um, and again, it, it's not always intentional, but, but it did happen. And so um, that's kind of why the environmental justice movement emerged, recognizing that one, we need to be protecting people and planet equally. We cannot just try to focus on environmentalism without considering people in the equation. Um, and so that's kind of like what so many organizations are now trying to grapple with. Like, how do we deal with and how do we account for social justice as well as environmentalism? Um, because there has been, it. these two areas have been so siloed in the minds of many environmentalists and conservationists. I hope that answered your question. Mm. I, I could really yeah, well, go I wanna, on time about this. But we we can continue continue on this role. I find it really fascinating. So I want to respond firstly with some sort of level of sympathy and compassion. So we're saying that these, you know, generally speaking, white males are in charge of a lot of things politically and across the world. And, you know, we're seeing a slow shift, but for now this is where we're kind of at. Now you say that the exclusion of BIPOC people were, um, I suppose, almost accidental in some ways. Now, I'm I'm trying to, I think that's your optimism not allowing you to say intentionally, but well, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like in their small circle, right, like they, in my compassionate response, I would say in their small circle of friends uh, and colleagues and associates, they, they're not affiliated with BIPOC people and that's because of their upbringing. So that's where my sympathy comes in. But I think my non-compassionate, straightforward, this is how life is side yeah. of me says, no, like, they should have really, if I don't know something, I'm not just going to make it up and try to speak for someone else. That's, yeah. that's not my right. Right. Yeah. And, and that, that's it. Like, that's exactly it. And that is one of the most important, like, tenets of environmental justice, right? Like, the inclusion of people who are going to be impacted by decisions in the decision-making process. Um, because for so long, 
It's like, here's what we're going to do for you. Here's what we're going to decide for you. Here's what's going to happen to your home, your space. And there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and that's what's created a lot of these problems. And yes, some of it did come from in intentional racism and the intentional desire to exclude certain people from certain landscapes and certain places. We think about um, Robert Moses, for example, like one of the most you know, well-known urban planners um, who created and planned out most of New York City. So many of his plans intentionally excluded low-income people and people of color from green spaces, from like literally one of the highways to get to one of the beaches in New York City is too low for public buses to get to to get through. So like you have to have a car to be able to get to this beach. Like those are the types of things that exist. Um, and so I certainly don't think that, you know, it's all unintentional. There's There was a lot of intention, a lot of planning that went into the world that we see right now. Um, but I do recognize that some of the the byproducts of that and some of the organizations that have created as a result of this world that has been created, may not have even realized the full extent of the intention that was initially put into this this structure and this system that we're living in. So that's that's mm. my clarification. <laughs> no, that's that's perfect. And something you said earlier, also, I just want to highlight. So yeah. you said the creation of national parks, or so like the way that they are intended for, is to be this haven, this Garden mm -hmm. of Eden type situation where. We want to keep it as pristine as possible without human intervention. Now, a part of me is like, yeah, that sounds incredible. Humans, at least the way that we know them, go into places and absolutely destroy it. Yeah. And that's just what we're used to. That's what we do. Um, so I understand and there's a level of sympathy. Now, where you say it impacts uh, Indigenous cultures is I'm assuming they do things such as um, forage and they're also they're also integrated into the habitat. So they are not, they are not without the nature. They're interconnected right. As, right. As, as unison. So I'm assuming that's where you say that's a problem because they've lost this cultural knowledge on how to, if I were to give some examples, like harvest some tubers or maybe even if we were to go to, to, to an extreme, like it, I don't know if this is the US and relevant other parts of the world, but in Australia, the Aboriginals used to, um, burn off the Daintree rainforest to yeah. um, stimulate growth, but also for their hunting purposes. So is it things like that that you're referring to as to why the, at least, I suppose I'm asking for a solution in this. Would you like to see certain Indigenous populations maybe have rights to enter this national park and have these, um, almost have a platform to culturally um, educate their people, I suppose? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a, a global land back movement that we are seeing right now, and that is returning the the rights and protections of the land to um, the rightful owners to different indigenous tribes all over the world, recognizing that many tribes do not view it as ownership. Like that's a very colonial lens to think of it as mm. ownership of the land, you know, we are stewards of the land. We have a relationship, this symbiotic relationship with the land, but we don't own it. Um, yeah. And so I think that's um, 
the the whole mindset of you know humans being this like destructive being um i think came to be because we not we not me but you know there was a a, a belief that mm-hmm. this symbiotic relationship with nature would not cause us to evolve in the ways that you know early settlers believed that we needed to um as a society as a world and so a lot of the things that you know, might be very common to indigenous communities were seen as like barbaric for lack of a better words. And we've seen that word used in so many contexts. And it's like mm-hmm. those types of narratives are so damaging. And now we're seeing the the flip side of that where we are now looking to indigenous tribes all over the world for climate solutions because they had it right the first time. And then we messed it up. And now we're like, uh oh, <laughs> and and so that's that's kind of the shift that we're seeing. And so you know, in Australia, in literally every part of the world, we are seeing tribes being able to regain access and sovereignty to their lands. And I think more of that is exactly what we need. Uh, and I actually one of the Joy Report episodes was all about this and like the whole the land back movement and why it's so necessary for the advancement of climate and environmental justice. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So I want to shift gears for a second or kind of shift gears, but still stay on the same topic of, okay. of climate injustice. Cause I find it incredibly fascinating as, as a topic overall, because it's very um, triggering, I think for a lot of people, sure. whether you are the person of color or whether you're the white person, like, no, I didn't do that kind of thing. So when we're looking at countries, so, so, with a more macro lens than just certain communities of, of low socioeconomic areas or, or colored communities, we're looking at countries. So we can look at like India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, these places that currently, you know, as we're recording this, have record heat waves right. to which they're actually dying and, and losing work. Hospital records, are, hospitals are out of control. So is this the places you look at when you're looking at examples of climate injustice or injustice related to climate change like where do you go if someone says no climate change doesn't affect poorer or more developing nations well yes i mean because the proof is 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 out there um you know something that we're seeing right now is an increase of people who are migrating to different locations as a result of climate um Climate migration is intended and sought to be one of the like largest contributing factors to migration over the next few years. And there are trends that are indicating that migration will be at a larger rate from climate change than any war in the world combined. Um, people are going to be moving at insane levels to be able to remain safe and have livable places. And where are they moving from? They're moving from developing nations that have contributed least to the climate crisis because people do not have the same levels of infrastructure and individual like possessions, I suppose, um, to, to contribute to the climate crisis mm. in the ways that more developed nations do. And so, and yet you're experiencing the most harm and are having to move out of their homes and out of their places for safety 
And I think the the only thing that we can do to kind of rectify that or at least to to mitigate that is to, you know, do collectively limit our consumption, but also like getting rid of these fossil fuel projects. Like we we need to back out of our reliance on oil, on all of these things and and creating something that I'm probably I'm sure you've probably already heard of is this this just transition, right? Like as we are moving from our reliance on coal and on oil and all of these things and shifting to renewables, those who worked in the mines and worked in refineries, how are we going to make sure that they are not left behind as we are evolving? Because generally they're the same people who are being excluded from other types mm. of systems and advancement. And so, yeah, the, the just transition makes sure that everyone has a role in this next wave of whatever our world is going to look like. 100%. We can't discriminate. I think that's the... A lot of people, especially, you know, mentioned the fossil fuel industry and people who work in coal mines, etc. I think they have this weird mentality that that people with green thumbs are just trying to remove their jobs and kill their livelihoods and just absolutely crush who they are, their job. They're trying to crush their town's economy and my family and all this stuff. But it's really, it's not like that. I feel like there's, there's, I, I don't know what made that thought persist in their mind. I don't know if it's the actual industry itself made this lie or story saying, oh, these green thumbs just want to take away your jobs. And so then they believe this, even though it's, it's not true. Like I watched an interesting deep dive recently, actually. Um, it was just this independent journalist who went to a few coal mining towns in Australia and, and they said, you know, they think their jobs are going to get taken away, but they live and work in these places that are toxic for their lungs. Like they have very bad lung and cardiovascular issues because yeah. of the pollution they're breathing in. And like, if we had a cleaner option with the same pay, everyone I know, including myself would move to that industry, but they don't, they don't see it. Like it's not clicking. And I'm just like, what a strange thing. Like the solutions there, yeah. they know it. Right. And yet this story is still being perpetuated that, um, you know, renewable energy is going to take the jobs of these coal miners when it's, it's so far from that. Well, I, I, I think that there, there hasn't been enough assurance that they won't lose their livelihoods. There hasn't been enough assurance and there hasn't been enough um, proof that there's going to be training to make sure that they won't be left behind, make sure that they will mm. be included in you know, the development of new renewables, make sure that people are getting trained on how to install solar panels and yep. maintain wind turbines, all of these things. Um, and so without that assurance, all people have is what they know. And so I think it is the role of the government and people are contributing to this just transition or to the transition to cleaner energy to make that very clear. Because right now I would say that most people do not feel confident that they will be included in that transition. And that's when the fear comes in. And that's when wanting to main, maintain the status quo feels right because it feels secure. And when people's livelihoods are on the line, like variability is not really an option and a possible new job is not an option. So there needs mm. to be some sort of assurance 
that people are not going to starve if a, a coal plant is closed down. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point, and that is that's when it comes down to the role of these politicians, and I guess us as humans to really keep into the account the people that we vote into power to make sure they follow through and what they say they were going to do, mm-hmm. um, which would be a great start. Yes. Um, <laughs> on the climate racism side of things, I've had this thought, and I hate to think so black and white sometimes, but part of me thinks that there's like two halves. Part of me thinks it's straight out racism. Like who cares because of the people of color? Like there's certain people that discriminate like that. We can't bounce around that topic. Sure. But part of me thinks it's it's actually not that. It's actually, oh, it's not. It's just not happening to me. So I don't care. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I do know what you mean. Um, it's so interesting. So there is this um, term called sacrifice zones. And there is this notion that certain areas are just going to have to have a lot of these polluting industries and things that cause harm. And the people who live there, like, you know, it's for the greater good. Like some people have to sacrifice their lives for everyone else to benefit, which is disgusting. And like some voodoo (laughs) magic stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's so, it's so problematic, especially because as I mentioned before, like so many people who live near these toxic facilities, these polluting facilities, one did not ask for them to be there. Two are there because that's what they can afford. Like if people could just up and leave and go to somewhere safer, I would imagine that nine times out of 10, they would. And so like, you can't just classify something as a sacrifice zone when people are literally unable to leave. Um, Because yes, people will be sacrificed and that's unacceptable. And it's going to be the same people and same types of people who are being sacrificed every single time. And so, yeah, there, there is this notion of like, it has to happen. And of course there are some people who are thinking that this is intentional, but then there's also people who think about big business and they're like, well, this is where the cheapest land is. Like the cheapest land is in places that already have like other facilities like ours. And so that's where we're going to put it because it's most cost effective, not even thinking about the health impacts or the aggregate types of pollutants that are coming from not just one, but several facilities all at once without the inclusion of a whole other one. So yeah, sacrifice zones. I like, I've been hearing this term a lot and, and I've been in different spaces where people are using it in different contexts. Um, and Either way, if you are going to classify something as a sacrifice zone, you have to acknowledge that it's not just the land that is being sacrificed, it's people's lives that are also being sacrificed. And that is unacceptable. 100%. It's, I'd never heard of the term. Um, I, I'm not 100% on how to react um, yeah. to learning about such a term. You know, for me, I think it comes just to cognitive dissonance. People can't comprehend the amount of people that are actually impacted by this. So if you say, I'm going to make this up so nobody fact check me. (laughs) 50 million people are affected by this in the United States alone because Mm -hmm. of, you know, whatever. How can someone wrap their mind around 50 million individual human beings with their own wants, passions, 
loves, fears, uh, goals. Like you can't, so it almost feels overwhelming in, yeah. in that way. Like first off, like I'm thinking that's two Australias worth of people that are being affected, like in my made up scenario, right? So I find that it's really helpful to start really small in terms of our mind. So whether you start thinking about one community or one county or one whatever it is, and that's when it comes down to what you, you know, originally said about just being educated. So educating yourself on different issues. And, and do you think it's enough? I mean, in this, in, in 2022 and forward, is it enough to just be educated? Um, no, I think um, with education comes responsibility and so, um, and comes accountability. And so if you are taking the time to learn about a topic, you can't just sit on that knowledge. There's some level of action that has to be taken, even if it's sharing your resources with other people so that they can also be educated. And so then it's creating a, a network of people who now understand this topic. And when they're operating in their daily lives, they're they're being mindful of certain things as a result of the education that you shared. Like that, that's powerful. And that's not a heavy lift. And so you know, I, I don't believe that if you are learning about these things, that's all that you can and should do. And, you know, that's one of my many issues with the whole, the ivory tower, right? Like we can't just sit around and theor- like be theoretical about these things anymore. Like yeah. now is the time to take action. And even if it's just making information more accessible so that it's reaching greater audiences and reaching the masses at a level that it had not been before. Mm, yeah, sitting in the ivory tower is something we definitely don't like. Everything needs to not be theoretical and be practical. It, yeah. Um, something that I really loved. Have you watched Don't Look Up? The I have, yes. Yeah, so it's like this uh, character that was almost seemed like the Elon Musk of that world seemed to not test these things and everything was good in theory and I'm not going to spoil the movie, but that was not a good idea that they didn't practice these certain things that they were preaching but education starts pretty early on in life like we enter school at about the age of five or so right whether you're homeschooled or or conventional is completely a different topic altogether but there's a lot of problems I have with the schooling system and there's a lot of things I like yeah now if you were to wave a magic wand and change something around the about the curriculum. You're smiling, so I'm assuming you already have a few answers for me. Oh man! Could change the curriculum. What would they be? Uh, I'm smiling because there's just so many things, and I feel like I rant about the educational system a lot. Um, so I'm trying. But to... before you get into your rant, then yeah. what do you think something something good that they're doing? Okay. Um, So in the state of Connecticut, there was just a law passed that requires all schools to include climate change in their curriculum. Um, In the state of Virginia, um, all of the fifth graders in one city just received climate climate action kits. So they are learning about the impacts of the water system and like all of these different things in like very actionable ways. And it also included calls to action for their parents. 
I want to see more of that happening. And I want that to be like regularly integrated into the curriculum. I'll also say, um, even in higher education, I did environmental studies in undergrad. I have a master's in environmental law and policy. I have a law degree focused on environmental law. I did not learn about people of color who were contributing to this work. And I think it would have made a really big difference in how I felt going through my educational journey if I learned about people who, like Dr. Washington, who worked in the 70s and created the models that proved the existence of climate change, um, like that a black man did that. And so like there, there are so many stories just like that, that I just wish I would have known. Um, like in the U S there's just this, like, I don't know, black history and just BIPOC history in general is taught in such a sanitized way. And it really dilutes, um, what people are learning. And a few years ago, I learned the statistic that, um, in the U S the average of when people stop learning about indigenous cultures and indigenous history is the fourth grade. Like there are so many layers and levels and nuances that you cannot share with an eight-year-old and you shouldn't, Mm. right? And so like the fact that we're not able to have those like fully nuanced conversations is detrimental to like developing solutions and developing people who are understanding the world in holistic and intersectional manners, recognizing the full history, you know, like right now in the US, we are in the midst of what uh, one of my like idols, Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term intersectionality, she calls it a war on truth. We're in the midst of a war on truth where we are literally fighting for the right to be able to talk about facts in schools. We are literally in the midst of a time where there are school boards and whole states that are not allowing true history to be taught. There are like certain governments that are saying that you can't use the word race or racism in like government conversations and negotiations and discussions like fascinating it's terrifying yeah yeah so i i just there's there's a need for for honesty because if we're not telling the full truth then we are going to be in a society with a lot of delusional people unfortunately Mm. and that is not what we need right now Yeah, 100%. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment. Okay. Oh, but not devil's advocate, just press a little bit further here. Um, firstly, I highly relate to the the history in Australia. I can, I can my experience anyways, I, I think the last I remember learning about the Indigenous population was like one, one hour session maybe when I was six. Right. And that's all we know. We don't learn about the culling or the tools they use or their history, their language, yeah. their, yeah. So that's really sad. I'd, I'd love to see that more and more because as you get older and I've learned a lot about the indigenous population here, they're absolutely riveting history and, so and, and yeah. yeah, culture. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now teachers have a really hard job. 
Let's be real. They have to be psychologists, mathematicians, scientists, geologists, everything. And now here we are all high and mighty saying, I want you to also include climate education. I want you to also include, and this sounds, I I, I don't want to hear myself saying it, but I want you to include proper history in there as well. Yeah. Now, part of me is really compassionate to the teachers in that they they have to do a lot. They do. And so I'm thinking to incorporate this level of education where we're adding other topics like this, which are incredibly crucial for us as a society. Sure. What are we taking out? I, I mean, I... I think there are a lot of things that we learn in school that feel very frivolous and that we don't feel like we've used like since we learned them. Um, I think the the main culprit, especially in the U.S., is standardized testing. Um, you know, so many schools are required to teach to a certain exam that you know dictates what the whole school year is going to look like because it's all based on getting your students to pass these certain exams. Um, and so as a result, there's no room to be able to be creative and think about creative solutions. I think there are so many ways to teach your standard science class in a way that incorporates climate change, that incorporates different perspectives. There are creative ways to do that. And I think teachers might even be excited to be able to include that into their curricula. But so often they're restricted because they have to teach a very rigid type of seemingly frivolous information um, for an exam that a student has to take at the end of the school year or at the end of their three or four or five years. And so, I don't know, I'm a huge advocate of getting rid of standardized tests because their their history is also just very racist and like it's, it, uh, you know, perpetuates privilege in certain ways and and so, oh, sorry. I, can you dive into that for a moment? Yeah, just for a moment. Just thinking about like people, especially in the U.S. I, and I, I really am only saying that because I can't speak to other countries and the ways that their educational systems work. But you take mm-hmm. something like the SATs, which are like the standardized tests that student, like high school students, have to take in order to be admitted into a lot of universities, and like that, that score will dictate um, a part of your acceptance into a a college or university. Um, If you are more affluent, you will be able to pay for a tutor who will get you ready for that course. If you are, for example, from a low income family where you have to work a job to help support your household, then your time is being split between school and that responsibility in the home. And so you won't be able to dedicate all of your time and energy to prepping for these standardized tests. And so, and also the people who are creating these standardized tests are generally also, again, very homogenous. And so the questions that they're asking are, you know, things that the average person or a low income person would not have the experience, like have experience with. And so for many of those reasons, it's it's been shown and there have been many studies that indicate that like standardized tests have adverse outcomes for like a lot of low income and like students of color. So it's all a mess. It's all a mess. That's really, 
it makes sense. Like I'm not like it, nobody can say like, oh no, that sounds just illogical. Yeah. Um, cause, cause you look at like the public versus private schooling sector and right. public schooling does uh, growing up, I did both public and private. So I understand yeah. the difference and I can say with confidence, unfortunately that private schools just have better resources. Of course. And I don't know about the payment to teachers, but are they getting more qualified teachers because private pay extra? And then you're again, discriminating or imbalance between where it should be. So yeah, that's a, that's a good point. <laughs> now something to piggyback on that which I find really fascinating is you said incorporating climate lessons into science now this is where I think we can really take advantage of something that the fossil fuel industry taught us mm. in the US and I know this because I learned it from Outrage and Optimism which is a fantastic podcast for anyone into um, climate change so the fossil fuel industry supplied teaching materials to schools in the US mm-hmm. that is convenient for the teachers because they're like, I don't need to prepare this educational material now. Yep. But it also doesn't mention anything about how bad fossil fuels are. So they teach it in a way that is actually prejudiced based on that industry. So they would say, you know, renewable energies are this, but do you want to, like what we were talking about earlier, 17,000 or whatever the number is, people rely on jobs about cold. Do you want to take their jobs away? So they teach it in in a way that's very biased. So in my mind, when we're talking about this, I'm like, there is a space in the market right now, whether it's a government organization that's not funded by corporations or an NGO that supplies educational material that is relevant and accurate on climate change, racial justice, social issues, so that teachers' life is easier. So that would be a nice thing I'd like to see happening in the world. Me too. Um, And I know that intersectional environmentalists, we're starting to do that type of work and um, we're creating digital toolkits about different topics where people can, it, it acts as a starting point for people to be able to dive into these topics in really accessible ways. And so those are available on our website. Um, yeah, so we're trying, um, and I know a lot of other organizations are trying, uh, but I would love to see something like that become more standardized. Absolutely. Mm, I love it. So you, you mentioned, um, you know, IE, that's a place where I find is actually the resources for someone who's wanting to start to learning about this is actually pretty good. Yeah. So <laughs> I wanted to see where you would kind of get your information for from relating to social issues that something that is unbiased that if someone's looking to educate themselves mm-hmm. they can look to um i i would say looking to an organization like intersection environmentalist would be a good starting point um we make it a point to make our resources as accessible as possible where not using technical terms, but we are explaining things in very digestible ways. Um, And and I think that it allows people who are at any starting point to be able to be engaged in the conversation. And we are centering voices who have been excluded from the environmental movement. That's, and we, we are really centered on joy and we're centered on making sure that people are resting and understanding that if you are doing this work in the climate, in the fight against climate change, 
you need to be a full sustained whole person. Um, Mm. and, and that's so important. And so I'm, I'm really inspired by the work that IE does, um, for so many reasons, but as a person who works for the organization now, I, I'm just really proud to, to be a part of this nonprofit who is doing like really meaningful work and like really trying to shift narratives and make sure that people are being uplifted and included. And then just thinking about what you mentioned before about there just being so many people who are being impacted by these calamities that it sometimes almost makes you numb to it because it's just so many people. Um, There's, there's such a need to do storytelling like that the role of storytelling and like talking about individual people's narratives like becomes really important in that equation to make sure that people understand what the lived experience is of somebody who's in Pakistan right now and is experiencing like outrageous temperatures like we need to humanize these experiences so that people will feel more inclined to take action Mm, that's a really really good point humanizing it and making it so that it tackles that issue of well it's not happening to me so it doesn't happen and um it's so funny when there's like i didn't want to bring it up but i I thought it was actually really really fascinating so this is coming out quite quite a bit later from when we're having this conversation but topically at the time you know unfortunately a few counties this roe versus wade issue has come up with with abortion i was talking to my fiance and she was like you know i'm really really affected by this i'm like but you're in australia it doesn't like i understand i feel for these people but you're right here if something were to happen she's like you know but i feel like i there's this weird sense of feeling that i i sympathize with them at a very deep level i'm like you know i could try to empathize but i i could never have given my upbringing but i'm like it's so fascinating how we can without even trying like if you really think and feel and you allow yourself to feel like this level of sympathy for people on the other side of the planet that are going through something that you wouldn't wish upon your enemy. Right. Yeah. So that is um, a really, really beautiful way to kind of try to structure your life, I think. But coming towards the end of this conversation, we've touched on so much and I hope that I'm sure a lot of people have taken away a few golden nuggets from you. Okay. Um, towards the end, we have a bit of a, a bit of a thing we like to finish with, which is a word of wisdom section. So, you know, we, we've talked about a lot of different sectors and industry and categories. So in this words of wisdom section where Ariel, you're going to give us a little nugget to, to leave this conversation with, it could be related to something we talked about today, mm-hmm. or it could be something relevant, something that you just think you'd like people to know. But for the next few minutes, Ariel, the stage is all yours. Wow. Okay. Um, I think something I would love everyone to recognize is the value of self-determination. Um, there, as I mentioned before, there are people who are experiencing environmental harm at adverse levels. There are people who are experiencing the climate crisis faster and first and more severely than others. Um, And we need to be centering those voices and the solutions that we're creating. We also need to be making sure that those voices are being included in the decision-making process. And 
for that to occur, it does start with education. It starts with providing enough education for people to be able to reasonably say, yes, I want this or no, I don't want this. And I would like this instead. Um, and that's where the self-determination piece comes in. There, there are really beautiful and unique examples of that happening in the U.S. in the way that we are seeing certain laws and policies unfold and be developed. Um, in the state of New Jersey, for example, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of community engagement that led to the development of an environmental justice law for the state. Um, and that law will require the state to deny any permits for new facilities in communities where there is a showing of adverse environmental impact. Um, and that, and that's the first time like in the U.S. that there has been a law that requires a permit to just straight out be denied if it's shown that it will like cause even further harm to a community that's already been harmed by environmental hazards. And so, um, but that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for policymakers and decision makers listening to and validating the lived experience of people who are experiencing that harm. And so, and I also want to really reiterate the value and the importance of humanizing these crises and humanizing these experiences. Um, because I think that's the only way that we will be able to empathize. And, and that requires the role of art and it requires, um, I think artists have such an important role to play in movement building and protests and social change. Um, we've seen it all throughout history, all over the world, the role that song and art and paintings and photography has played in changing the world for the better. And so I believe that, especially as we're fighting the climate crisis, the role of artists is more important kind of now more than ever, because I think that's the way that we are going to get people who might not be connected to this topic or might not feel like they have a say or a role in this topic to, to engage with it and to experience uh, ways of contributing. So yeah, I don't know, just self-determination, uh, listening to people, validating their lived experiences and centering art in joy in the ways that we are developing uh, the change that we want to see. I think that's wow, it. What a beautiful way <laughs> to, to end this conversation. Um, yeah. Thank, thank you so much for coming on. Like we didn't even get to talk about plant-based diets, different solutions to climate change, defining environmental justice, so much more we could have really bounced into. And maybe, maybe there's merit for a round two sooner or later. That sounds um, fun. Yeah. I'd be into that. Definitely. I, um, I definitely want to leave with a thank you. Um, obviously not just, but very much including your time today in the, over the last 65 minutes or so to have this impactful conversation that people can take um, the learnings from and really incorporate, incorporate it in their lives. Something I definitely learned is the level of optimism is is very welcomed and very productive in in creating the change that we need to see. So thank you for being that voice out there that inspires that optimism, whether that's through Joy Report, whether that's through the work you do on TikTok or Instagram or IE 
It's yeah. something that is meaningful, impactful, and purposeful, not just for yourself, but for the people that will never be able to meet you, that that were impacted by the lessons that someone else learned from seeing something you posted. So the, the chain of effects is absolutely pivotal in the way that we need to progress as a society. So thank you for being a vital role in that chain. Um, it is very much appreciated. I love seeing it. Uh, other human beings absolutely crush it, which is awesome. But thank you again for all your wisdom that you left with us today. And I'll speak to you next time, Ariel. Wow. Thank you so much for those kind words. I really appreciate that. It's been such a, pla- a pleasure chatting with you today. Um, and I look forward to, to having this happen again, for sure. Hi there. Welcome to the end of the episode. Thank you for listening and or watching the whole way through. Uh, I've got to say, wow, what a powerful conversation i am really inspired and motivated firstly how cool is it to have someone who's optimistic um just get out and go be an optimist and it's much needed in this world of well injustice there is so much i took away from this conversation um it's a topic that i think we can never get too educated on i i suppose and not act upon like climate injustice Uh, racial injustice these are issues that are literally affecting people today they were affecting people 10 years ago and they will be affecting millions in our future so it is something that we need to act on so for anyone who is really inspired and motivated by this conversation uh, let us know on instagram what motivated you what inspired you tag myself tag ariel king i'll leave her social links in the bio underneath and the show notes underneath And let us know what you got out of this conversation. I'm really, really interested to know it. And make sure you don't forget to tag us. I'm at plant.paradigm. But with that being said, I hope everyone has a fantastic week. And I will speak to you and I'll see you next week's episode where we have the monthly paradigm. Until then, stay happy. Eat plants. Peace.